to an intro taylor warren and who are you uh well i'm a coach with source endurance and i'm also a bike racer with cs Velo. uh i'd say those are my two primary titles um i also do bike fitting um uh, worked in bike shops for a long time went to school at colorado state uh, and got a degree in exercise phys um and now i'm living in boise idaho for the time just uh living with a teammate doing some riding around the Boise area, kind of transitioning a little bit, heading down to Florida for the winter. Uh, but yeah, planning planning on gearing up for another season next year with CS Fellow and uh, diving more into the coaching side of things recently, just exploring, uh, yeah, getting on some podcasts and trying to put some of my work out there. Cool. I love it. What's the um... – I've always liked CS Fellow. I don't know what it is about that team. They have a good vibe. Uh, raced against them a, a more it seemed like when I lived in the Northeast but mm. yeah seem always seemed like a solid crew what's the draw to Boise and then will you go back there after Florida uh, potentially I I kind of found myself here by accident uh, I have a teammate here I moved out of I was living in San Diego I moved out pretty abruptly uh, beginning of the summer and decided to stay with my teammate for a few weeks uh while I raced the Boise crit and Salt Lake City crit, some of the some of the bigger crits out west. And I ended up really liking it here and I kind of had other housing options fall through for the time being. So I ended up staying here and I've been here for about three months now. <laughs> cool. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of unexpected, but uh, I really like it here. Like the, the mountain biking is amazing. I'm right at the bottom of Bogus Basin. So I've got a 16 mile climb right out the front door. Uh, and Boise surrounded by three national forests. So I've been getting more into hiking, backpacking, just doing a lot of outdoor stuff. It's really good access to that here. Have you seen any transfer from like hiking to riding? Um, well, I don't know if I've seen any direct transfer, but I'm a really big proponent of encouraging people to get out and hike. Um, mostly just because it's very three-dimensional where cycling is like very one-dimensional you're you know moving in different planes of motion you're walking on uneven ground um i think it's a great off-season activity i think it builds a lot of resilience as far as bone density and joint tendon strength and and you're just out in nature and honestly like i've been backpacking a few times in the past month and it the exertion is on is pretty similar to like an endurance ride i would say like i was looking at my whoop data the other day and i was averaging like 120 beats per minute like mm. walking around uh 50 pound backpack climbing hills and whatnot so it's like i think the physical exertion was actually pretty similar to like an endurance ride and probably pretty similar muscle groups as far as like a direct benefit to uh endurance or performance on the bike i don't know if i could really pull up that correlation uh but i think indirectly it has a big impact I'm always, I was curious because I had never hiked before moving to North Carolina and there's awesome trails here and I would go out for like an hour and a half and it is, I mean, first few times going down, I was like, damn, my shins are feeling a burn that I've never yeah. felt before. And then they get, you know, the legs just get stronger and feel more solid. And I can't say that I was riding better from it directly, but it definitely didn't make me weaker. Um, mm. So I've, I toyed around with the idea of maybe what I would hike a day instead of doing an endurance ride or if it was bad weather but i'm just too addicted to riding so i kind of like never followed through with that but 
I did it some days on recovery days and then I'm like, is this too hard? Maybe it's too, uh, so I don't know, but yeah, it's interesting. I love hiking. I'm going to definitely miss that. It would, I wish I had that all winter, but can't have it all. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so first, the uh, first topic that you had listed out here was training timelines for improving different aspects of your physiology, i.e. when to do what. I love this because it's a can of worms. I'm going to let you kind of like open this thing up. What are you thinking when you put that thought together? What made you think of this topic? I think it was just the time of year and a lot of questions I get from the athletes I work with. Like, when should I implement like a FTP block or when should I do strength training? Or like, you have like all these different timelines within a single season. Mm-hmm. Um. And so that like, it, it's really like kind of the basis of periodization is like, what does your timeline actually look like? Uh, and so when I talk about those adaptation timelines, like the way I like to break it down is in the body with adaptations, you kind of have structural changes and chemical changes and structural changes actually take quite a long time to, to happen. And when I say structural changes, I mean, things like increased hypertrophy of the left ventricle of your heart so your heart's getting larger um maybe you're increasing mitochondria density like literally it's like machinery in your muscle cells or uh, like your body has to build these things and like structural changes you can see that take a long time and when you say long time two years five years decade yeah i mean for for endurance capacity maybe you might have like 16 plus weeks on the short end of things on the long end, multiple years, right? It takes a long time to mm-hmm. build these things. And it's very, I mean, I think it's very determinant on an abilities, uh, an athlete's ability to respond to training load as well. Like people respond differently, right? You might see adaptations happen a lot quicker in one individual versus another. Um, so yeah, th- those would be more like structural changes. And so when I'm thinking about periodization, I'm thinking, okay, like these are going to, these are going to take longer. So the timeline needs to be longer to see improvement. Mm-hmm. Like I want to give someone an endurance building block for like four weeks and then transition to something else. Cause you probably, it just probably won't be enough time to see improvements. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you have cellular changes. Um, which like could be like enzymatic activity or uh, buffering pH in the muscle cell, things like that. And these chemical changes usually occur quite rapidly uh so it could be rapidly maybe two to eight weeks or so um you might see these kind of changes when you're doing anaerobic capacity training uh or vo2 max work or even threshold work to some degree um and so that that's a factor in building a timeline as well and so i'm thinking like okay if i'm if i want to improve an athlete's endurance and threshold like i might need like 16 plus weeks for that to occur if someone is looking to improve anaerobic ability maybe they're 30 second to 90 second power so like that might you could maybe facilitate those changes in like a three-week time span or shorter like you could do one sprint workout and see changes like the next week essentially because these these workouts are so energetically demanding the body really responds really quickly because it's doesn't like to uh be out of homeostasis very long so it's gonna it's gonna catch up to the demands quite quickly 
how many workouts would you do if you were doing like the 30 second, the anaerobic capacity work, how many workouts in a week would you have them do over that three week period? Uh, I think it depends on the athlete, but it's probably no more than two. Two mm -hmm. would be like on the high end. I'd say these workouts yeah. are so intense. Like you're, I talk about the different drivers of adaptation and for something like endurance, it's, more is almost always more and like the volume is the driver of the adaptation where something like an anaerobic workout the driver adaptation is going to be the intensity not necessarily the volume so when i'm looking for that i look for highest quality and oftentimes with high quality you just you can't really replicate high quality very often mm -hmm. so a super hard you know if someone's doing one minute hill repeats uh I probably would only give that to them once a week or so. I like, I don't think I'd ever give more than one time. One minute twice sucks. A week, I, I hate that. I do, I do not like 30 to 60 seconds. It's so short and it's just so brutal. And if you do it right, it's, I think it's just terrible. When you talk about uh, an endurance block, but then kind of, you made the comment of like endurance is just more is better. I mean, do you ever do, full-on endurance blocks or is that just like an ongoing thing in training uh i would say i would do endurance blocks maybe transitioning from off season to mm. to competition season where you might just build volume and then if you're in the gym doing strength work the strength work may might take the place of the intensity for the time being and then yeah it's like very very generalized fitness at the beginning and then moving into the competition phase getting more and more specific do you think it's you know we kind of made a endurance stuff takes a long time and then the anaerobic capacity the sprint work might only take three weeks you know you hear people say like the higher the intensity the faster the adaptations happen and so like we can do these three-week blocks do you think that stuff goes away faster and that's also why it like comes back faster? Is there any like correlation with that? So if you don't train it, you know, you're going to, you don't use it, you lose it. Whereas like we're kind of always using endurance. So I think it sticks around for a long time unless you like stop riding completely. But um, is that fair to say? Like if you're getting, if you are bad at anaerobic capacity stuff, you need to do it maybe more often so that it sticks around or how do you approach that? That's Yeah, I would say that's exactly. Right. um like the the stuff that comes quickly goes away quickly as well but yeah it's like these structural changes they're not gonna disappear in two weeks off the bike you know it took like five years to increase the size of your heart and uh build all these these mechanisms so to say uh, whereas like the cellular changes uh like if you're not introducing that same energetic demand your body is gonna detrain very quickly just because it's it's really hard for the body to maintain those things mm. I hope everybody heard him say five years because I get some pushback when I've been starting to say in podcasts, like, Hey, if you're three years into training, you're pretty new to this. And I'll get an email like, dude, I've been training. I've increased this. And I don't know why you're calling me new. And I'm like, dude, it's not a diss. It's like, that should be motivating. You've made all of these gains in three years, but you're still very new to, to endurance sports. Five years is what Taylor's talking about. Like, you know, there's guys, um, Alan cousins is always like, this takes a decade. And I'm like, mm -hmm. I love, I love when people say that because it's true. Like, it just takes time you can't rush these things but a lot of athletes want to and there's no shortcut to it so it's good for people to hear that coming from your mouth 
what else on training timelines do you think regarding different aspects of physiology? I think this was super helpful for people to kind of see the lower end stuff versus the higher end stuff. And I like the difference of structural versus enzymatic changes. Any other big topics in that one or big bullet points you'd want to add to that? Uh, I think the biggest thing is just, you know, when it, when is your race schedule? What are you training for? And what does your timeline look like? Because I think that'll help you dictate a lot of the periodization of the plan as well. Like if you're racing in SoCal starting in January, your preseason might look a lot different than if you're, maybe your target event is in July or something and you're living in Minnesota. Um, so I think like, it's not only the physiology that's going to guide uh, how you approach planning a training season, but also um, potential timeline and potential competition phase and where that's going to take place. And like you mentioned, Minnesota weather, you might be stuck indoors and maybe you've only got, you're like, Hey, I'm only doing an hour on the trainer per session. It's like, okay, well that's going to change when you're going to be ready to rock. This is a perfect transition to the second bullet point of periodizing a race season. How long should the phases be of base build taper peak? Um, I'm gonna let you open this up again. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I think in that question too, there's a lot of, it depends answers. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I love. Well, that was, yeah, I like these because it's a can of words. Yeah, everyone is right. like, you know. Yeah, it's not, it's not like I look through my athlete roster and I'm like, okay, I'm just going to just use, you know, traditional periodization on every single rider. Yeah. I don't think Even it's... if you wanted to, it's just not possible. Like we, I've talked to guys, of, I talked to Landry before and I was like, hey, you know, people that can't afford a coach and that listen to the podcast and you, you get those emails and it's like, you know, they, they want a very canned thing. Get me over the next five months. And, and I had tried to put together, like, what's a way to help the newer cyclist that's like get educated and help them understand what we're talking about, these different training phases. And I've even put something out on training peaks finally of like, what I would do base to race. And I made a video though of like, okay, this is really hard because there's this case scenario, then there's this. And if this is you, and if you're indoors and if you're outdoors, and I'm part of me thinks it's almost, it, I don't know if it does people a disservice. I guess it's better than not knowing anything, but there's so much, it depends on you, the athlete. Mm. So it's like, yeah, just kick it off with that. How do you, we'll just open it up with like, this is, there's a lot of different scenarios within this one. Right. And that's why we have jobs. <laughs> I mean, training, training is very simple, but also extremely complex. But I think it's like the athlete's life around training that makes training so complex. Yes. Um, yeah, I think part of it goes back to timeline. I think a lot of it goes back to what the athlete's goals are, what the athlete's background is. Like an athlete that is fairly new to the sport, I might just implement a pretty basic linear periodization approach where, okay, like you just need to learn how to train effectively and get consistent at riding and probably build volume. So I think, let me taking, jump. Sorry, I think train effectively. What do you mean by that? Uh, I think, I mean, just executing yes. training in a, in a way that's going to be, that's going to help you be consistent. That's going to help you make improvements. That's going to be, I like to add in elements of, fun <laughs> into the training right like it needs wait a minute this is supposed to be fun taylor <laughs> <laughs> like the training needs to be enjoyable or else it's not going to be sustainable and if it's not sustainable you're probably not going to be very consistent and like you said like this is a sport where you know it might take five plus years of of training to to get to where you want to be 
And so the consistency is such a big proponent of the training. Um, so yeah, the, the execution is very important because yeah, it's like, I try to get athletes to move away from outcome goals and move more into process style goals. And it's like, okay, then out outcome goal is probably going to be a side effect of the process goal. If you're able to, to really execute properly in every single ride. So this is like, you know, you're getting in the volume prescribed, but you're also riding at a appropriate intensity, which for endurance is usually probably easier than most people care to admit they're riding. Uh, it's all the, also the fueling aspect. Okay. I'm like taking in carbohydrates during the ride an adequate amount. I'm feeling adequately before I'm introducing proper nutrition after the ride to help me facilitate recovery. Uh, so it's like all these, all these very minute things that add up for a single training session that, you know, if, if I go out on a bike ride, I have a really good sense of how to do all these things. Cause I've been doing it for 10 plus years, but when you're working with an athlete, he's only been trained for maybe a couple months or so, they might not have these built-in skill sets. Uh, so it's important to remember these things. So for a newer athlete, I might take a very basic periodization approach and it's just like, okay, we're going to literally, we're just going to work on building volume and executing workouts appropriately. And that's like the main process goal. Whereas if I'm working with an athlete who's been training for maybe five plus years or cat two or cat one or whatever, they have ambitions of racing higher level national calendar events. I might take a totally different approach where we're thinking more about block periodization, where we're maybe honing in on one specific aspect of their physiology that's maybe uh, has been a limiter in the past for success for whatever race calendar they're doing. Mm -hmm. And I might hone in on that a little bit more uh, in the, in the preseason, because a lot of the periodization, I would say the most important part is during the preseason, just because that's when you have the largest timeline and that's where training can take full focus. Cause once you get into the race season, it becomes a lot harder to train and build. I think it's easy to maintain to a certain degree, but it's really hard to build. Uh, so like the training almost takes a backseat, whereas recovery will take priority, um, you're just kind of racing, mitigating stress from the travel, mitigating stress from the racing. So it's really hard to, you know, implement big training blocks during a race season. So a lot, a lot of the concepts I talk about are taking place kind of in that preseason, maybe the the 20 weeks between off season and when you first start racing. Mm. Um, and then a lot of the periodization approaches during season revolve around uh, like tapering potentially just you want to be fast when you need to be fast essentially right it's like if you're trying to perform your best in your target a race it's really you need to be fast for that a race it doesn't make sense for you to be fast and strong you know in january or, or like three months away from that a race so a lot of periodization is uh it's trying to you know hit the mark as far as as your, your A performance is going to occur. And that can be really challenging as a coach where I think probability wise, your best days on the bike are probably going to happen in training just because you're training a lot more than you're actually racing. But as a coach, it's really important to try to line up those, you know, best performances ever on a race day. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's, that's a big part of how you're looking at periodization as well. 
I think that also like highlights why it's so important to have these training races or B level events before your A race, because it's, I try to explain to some people when they're like, well, I have these, I have four races this year and three, here are my three A races. And I'm like, wait, hold on a second. So you, you want like full success. You're winning this one race and you're not going to race before it. How, you know, where's the litmus test? Like we can go out and do like Sims and things like that, but it's just not the same as racing where you go out and get some races under your belt. And you're like, you know what? I actually, we need to tweak this. I wasn't feeling good with this. This kind of feels off. And there's time to make some of those little shifts in training that can have a bigger result. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just, I think this is a good topic because it help will help people like realize how much they need to zoom out and look at their calendar and like, you know, put things down on an actual calendar, look at when your biggest races are and work backwards um, and have some days in there where you can try and figure out where are you at? Um, you mentioned block periodization. Do you do that often? And for people that don't know what block periodization is, it's where you more stack a lot of the hard work. I'd say if you are someone that believes in doing like pure block training and you're going to go into a VO2 max block, you might do three or four VO2 max sessions in the first week and then maybe only one in the following weeks. Um, do you do that often? If so, when do you use that? Because I know it's kind of, it's always a topic people have questions on or clarification on. I, I use it often with myself and also with higher level athletes I work with uh, just because I, I believe once you get to a certain level, it's all, everything's harder to, to keep seeing improvements, right? Mm -hmm. like you, they talk about new gains and this kind of, this exponential curve where you first start training, your body adapts quite quickly and you, you might see a lot of progress really early on. Mm -hmm. And then the, that line starts to level up quite a lot where might take a whole season of training to see additional maybe few percent gains, five percent or so. Whereas I believe the block periodization helps facilitate those adaptations a little bit more um, after you've been training for quite a while. So I'll use like potentially I'll use a VO2 max block to facilitate adaptations there. Whereas like a newer athlete, I might take an approach where we're kind of doing, you know, we might do a little bit of sprint training and a little bit of VO2 max work and like a similar timeline, not necessarily like only honing in on one aspect because there, there's always going to be a give and take, right? If you're only doing one thing, you're probably uh, diminishing in other aspects of your, of your physiology, so to say, mm -hmm. or at least you're not building, you might be able to maintain them. That's man. I think back when I first started getting coached, it was very block focused. One, we're working FTP. Um, and actually back then it was still, uh, Hey, you don't really train VO2 max because it's what you are, you know, what your body's has, uh, and why am I blanking on that hereditary, but, um, yeah, it's your genetic VO2 genetic <laughs> which we know is, was, is not true now but at that point in time so it's like hey we're gonna like focus on ftp a lot and then it would be um then we got very block focused when we realized it could be you could train your vo2 max and then i think it was probably like late 2010s it was like, you know, training two hard things during the week. And I started getting like burnt out from too many intervals. And then one of my last coaches was way more of the mindset of, you know, if you neglect something, it's, it's gone. So we might work on something, but we're maintaining, maintaining something else. So we'd be doing like over-unders and VO2 max at the same time. 
And there's other people who prefer to try and focus on one thing. Um, I think more the route I kind of go with an athlete is if there's a glaring weakness, like I always say, Hey, look at yourself, all aspects of cycling. You're never going to be a nine and 10 at everything. But if you have like a nine, a seven, an eight and a two, like we need to work on this too. That's going to be a problem at some point. And maybe that's where we do like two workouts a week in that, or do a block periodization, like you said, based on their experience level and how much training they've done. Whereas if it's someone that's an American, they're doing gravel, road, and crits, and they might jump in a cross race, like, okay, you, you kind of need a little bit of everything. I'm going to more try and focus on two things. And instead of like really just hyper-focusing on one, let's build something and maintain something else, make sure other things don't slip. And, you know, maybe in the back of our minds, say if we were working anaerobic capacity and still doing some over-unders, towards the end of the block, I might say, Hey, rip a VO two max effort. Like, how does this feel? Do you feel like you're getting weak at like the really hard three to five minute stuff? And then it's like calibrating from there. Um, yeah, there's just so many ways to do it. And it's funny, like, as I'm talking, I'm like thinking of different athletes, like, oh, but it might be different too at different times of the year as well. Totally, like, yes. like block prioritization is something I'd probably It'd like be part do, of your, to do that if you're racing, you'd be like just gassed. Yeah, I would. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I wouldn't really do. I definitely want to do a VO2 max block in the middle of race season. Um, like, I I typically would do maybe more of like a traditional style periodization, maybe the beginning of off season. Someone just transitioned back to the bike. All right, we're gonna be pretty generalized. We're just gonna slowly increase volume. We might be doing strength training. Um, Basically, I want to try to work. I want to try to train the athlete back to their back to the threshold they kind of left the season off with, mm. and that might that might take a little while. And that's all right. I'm not trying to rush that process. And then once they're maybe pretty close to those those levels that they were at before they took a off season break, I might think about implementing no block uh, periodization style approach to. Okay, maybe this athlete has really high fractional utilization, like a really good time trial rider, high threshold relative to their VO2 max. Okay, let's do a VO2 max block to try to push that ceiling up a little bit. And that might take place a month to a month and a half before their first race or so. Because you need to, like a VO2 max block is very intense. <laughs> if you're doing three to four weeks of VO2 max work in a row, you're probably going to be feeling the fatigue effects from that for maybe uh you know subsequent three to four weeks after that um so it, it trying to build in that recovery time is really important as well it's not like you're just doing a vo2 max block and then you're just way better and then you just go race and win all the stuff and to, like, i think also yeah. the mental toll that it takes it's at least for me when i when i think of if i'm going to really perform well at these workouts you know, I'm thinking about the night before and I'm making sure I carve up a little bit more and I'm thinking about it in the morning. There might be a little anxiety. It's like you get through it. I'm like, oh yeah, like I love the feeling of crushing that workout, but so much went into that little W that for me, I, I wouldn't, I don't even, I'm trying to think if I even do like two a week now. Um, or I might definitely, oh, that's what I was going to ask you because I was going to say, I might change it up. Like if I'm going to do, I still like classic five by fives or like a hard start with four to five minutes afterwards. Maybe later in the week, if I was really focused on VO2 max, I'd do something longer, like a seven to nine minute effort, 
if you're doing block periodization, do you do the same workout over and over or does it depend on the athlete or do you change them up the style within the same system? Uh, I'll typically do what I call going with the grain of fatigue. So in the beginning of the week, I might give the hardest workout where mm -hmm. that could be like a five by five or four by five or whatever. Uh, and then for VO2 max, I usually, what I'll do is I'll try to keep the intensity relatively similar as the, the week goes on, but I might just change the duration, shorten the duration. So our, our, at the beginning of the week, our goal is to accumulate maybe 20 minutes of time above 90% of VO2 max or whatever. I might do like a, a five by four or four by five. It doesn't really matter. And then as the athlete fatigues later in the week, maybe we're doing two or three VO2 max workouts that week. Mm -hmm. The last workout of the week might be six by three minutes. Yeah. So it's like a very similar time accumulation, but there's this more built-in rest. And mentally, I think a, a shorter interval is a lot easier to get through at the same intensity, right? Like a five minutes all out versus uh, three minutes at that same power, same RPE is a little bit more manageable, especially as you, as you fatigue throughout the week. For some reason, I would, I like almost never do four minutes because the way my brain like thinks about this, is if I'm going into that, if I'm dipping my toe in that pool, if I'm at four minutes, I'm just going to die for that last minute to get that extra minute, the five minutes. But if I do, I would rather do three minutes and just go like a little bit harder. Um, for some reason, four minutes, I, I just, I don't, I, I'm like, I just need to go harder. Or I need to go longer um just personal preference but when you you've brought up uh the gym what's your thoughts on when people should be lifting and how they should be lifting is that uh, year or is it just in the preseason it depends on the athlete i'd say i think I, mostly preseason if, if someone's really maybe sprint focused or they want to maintain muscle mass um you might have them in the gym once a week during the season mm -hmm. uh we and you can do a lot of things to mitigate fatigue with gym work in the season, like eliminating the eccentric phase of, of lifting could be pretty beneficial. You see it a lot with football programs where they're lifting year round and they might eliminate the eccentric phase of a, of a lift because it's a lot less muscle damaging. So which is the eccentric? It'd be like on a squat. It'd be the lowering phase. So just lift up. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's hard to do that with squatting, but for instance, like a deadlift, you might, lift it off the ground and then drop it or something along those mm -hmm. lines. If you're, if you have access to a gym that allows that. Um, I was just thinking, I'm like, would my gym be happy with me? <laughs> yeah. Because like the, the eccentric phase of the lift oftentimes induces the most, most muscle damage. Like you were talking about hiking downhill. That's all eccentric where your muscles are actually taking on quite a bit larger load than yeah. the, than the concentric phase. Um, so I might implement something like that with an athlete that's doing year round lifting, but I'd say more often than not, the majority, the majority of the lifting is going to happen in the preseason. Okay. Tapering was one thing in the period periodizing the training calendar topic that had kind of come up a little bit. What's your thoughts on taper? And I'm just going to leave it at that. It's a huge topic in itself. Right. T tapering, I feel like that's been a topic that for me personally might have been, it's probably like one of the trickiest things to get right, I'd say. Because uh, it's like the whole concept with tapering is you want to be as fit as possible going into your target race. 
but uh, you also want to shed as much fatigue as possible and trying to figure out when those points overlap can be really tricky and it, it in my experience too, it might not even be physiological changes. It might just be like sensations and athletes experiencing, uh, trying to get those right as well. Um, I think it's really influenced by, uh, like catecholamine release, like catecholamines are, it's a, like a hormone, like norepinephrine or epinephrine, something like the uh, typically like adrenal gland or release these hormones. And a lot of times they act as like a, almost like a pain relief system, um, so like oftentimes that riders will talk about feeling flat on a ride after they've had maybe like a recovery week or like a rest day. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that's attributed to the, you know, you, you have all these circulating hormones in your bloodstream when you're training hard that kind of keep you feeling strong and maybe dull the pain to some degree. Um, and so if you get that wrong, even if you're well rested and on paper, you should be feeling your fittest of the year you might just feel totally flat mm -hmm. on on target race day uh so it's really trying to find that that point of you know highest fitness to highest level of freshness and then the the subjective sensations are really important as well like if an athlete doesn't feel like they can perform like they probably aren't going to be able to as well uh so yeah it's a different approach with different athletes depending on what their race is like a, a taper approach for you know, like a sprint tournament for track racing is going to look totally different than someone tapering for unbound or like for the sprint tournament you know you, you might have the athlete rest for like two weeks prior <laughs> to the event right you want to be so rested for that kind of effort whereas unbound you might keep the volume quite high going into that race even just lower intensity mm -hmm. and you might not necessarily be uh you know you might not have shed, shed all the fatigue completely but it's probably more important to maintain volume and fitness going into a race like unbound because stuff like blood blood plasma is incredibly important mm -hmm. uh, for for performance and oftentimes taking you know two three days super light or off you'll see you'll see a drop in blood plasma even in that short of time period mm -hmm. so for unbound you want blood plasma to be as high as possible um so it's important to keep volume relatively high, even during the tapering process for a race like that. So yeah, it depends a lot on the length of the event, I would say. Yeah, I would, uh, I had posted, I think it was Masters Nationals, like 2021 or something. I'd posted what I'd done before and someone said, dude, you did a four hour ride on Tuesday. I said, yeah, the race wasn't until it was like, three or four days later and it opened up a great conversation I, mean, I'm, I don't taper a ton personally and with my athletes I try to have them like go through we try and figure this out before they have a big race like hey what has worked with you before if they're a new athlete but if the race was on Saturday let's say you know I think again it helps to, for people to work backwards I always came up with my coach uh so back in like 2011 he would say openers on Friday rest day on thursday wednesday we do back then i would do a two-hour endurance ride now i might do three and then tuesday was either like a training race or a hard day just to keep the sharpness in the legs and that has worked for so it's so like you know basic 
And I think then the things you can change are like, well, maybe you're traveling a lot the day before and you don't have time for openers and that's going to make the day way more chaotic to take the day off. I mean, I've had some great races the day with no ride in the day before. And I just did openers two days before. Um, it's got to work with life and travel and whatever else is going on. And you use the word confidence, whatever people go through, they have to be on the start line feeling confident, thinking, okay, I did everything right as best to my ability up until right now. Now I got to go execute. And if you're looking backwards and doubting things or second guessing things, it's like, that is just not the mindset to be, you're not in crush mode. You're in like, Oh, I hope I do okay today. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, that's, that's huge. There's, have you ever seen this paper? You could Google it. If not, it's a road to gold. It's a look at Nordic skiers and tapering. Uh, No, I don't think so. Check it out. Um, My old coach sent it over to me and I can't remember when this is from, but they looked at, I want to say like 11 Nordic skiers. So it's a small sample size, but they had said they, they're like, Hey, in theory, we always talk about this, like keep the volume the same, you know, reduce the intensity, you know, there's different theories. And they said, what do people, what are the elite athletes actually do? What do people who actually win really do? And so you had to be either a world cup champion, an Olympian, or you had to be a badass Nordic skier. Mm -hmm. And what they looked at was just the opposite. Like some people were trained super hard up to like two days before some people, like everyone kind of had their own magic thing, but they all were winning. And so it kind of came down to, this is very individualized. You definitely can still go hard during the week of a taper. Um, you know, sh- kind of what you're saying, shed fatigue, try to find your own personal, like where do you shed the most fatigue, still feel sharp um, and have confidence in what you've done. So it's a really interesting, it's, uh, they go pretty in depth in it, but it's a cool kind of overview and, uh, yeah, just tape tapering's tricky. It's we have a podcast with Cormac McGeo who's doing road worlds for Ireland. And I asked him about tapering. He literally goes, Man, I think that's the trickiest thing about bike racing. <laughs> it's like yeah. it's the one thing that everybody wants, just this, hey, how do I go from A to B perfectly? And there's just not that guide. It's really hard in the context of a a race season as well. Like I I think it's always easier to taper for like your last race of the year Mm. when you're not thinking about, Oh, I need to get back to training and build for the next event. It's like, okay. Cause for the last event of the year, I'm usually like airing on the side of caution where, okay, let's just shed maybe more fatigue than less. Whereas oftentimes in the middle of the year as a coach, I'm always thinking about what's the next event. And it's like, if depending on the priority of the race might change the approach a little bit, but I'm also thinking about, okay, we have to move into this training block after this race. So it's not like you can take a two-week taper and let fitness drop a ton just to shed a bunch of fatigue. So it, I think it's a really tricky in the context of like you're in the middle of the training year. How do you handle taper? And that's why you have priority races, right? Like a C race, you probably don't even taper at all. You shouldn't be because you're trying to build fitness. A B race, maybe you ride, you know, easy the day before or so. And then... the getting the a race right is really the trickiest part i think it's like how how do i figure out how to come on race day with peak performance and yeah like you said it's just like it's so individualized like i remember being at cascade one year and rob Britton was doing like a six-hour ride the day before the stage race started and that like blew my mind when i was pretty new to the sport i was like why like what what's going on why is he training so much the day before that's but wild. that's 
that's just what worked for him. And he was also building for the next event, essentially. So it's like that opened my eyes to different approaches. I always think back uh, tour bat and kill. That used to be one of like the biggest one day races in North America. I don't know if you guys went over there, you're kind of more West Coast, it seemed. But um, I think the last year I did it 2011 before it went bye bye was a terrible winter. Maybe it was, you know, maybe it was 2013. Anyways, bad winter. The race was on a Sunday. Like the all a ton of spring races were coming up. And I had the Saturday was like beautiful day. And I'm like, well, I'm not really that great right now. Anyways, like I haven't put in all these big rides, like all these other people who are down in the South, I might as well train today and just go race tomorrow. Like whatever. So I think I did a four and a half hour ride, which back then was definitely a big ride for me. Came in third the next day, wrote, had an amazing ride. And I was what the, how did this happen? There was, I had no pressure on myself. I was expecting nothing. I just let it fly. Whereas other years, it's like, oh, this is bat and kill. This is the biggest race. All these pros are here. I'm going to overthink this. Da, 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 da. And that changed my perspective on so many things. It was like just, yeah, it was mind boggling to me. Um, as I think you just used that word. Like it's not everything on paper does not always like the human body is not that basic. And so it's like, all right, well, maybe, maybe some riding in the legs really is a good thing before a big day. And it's always funny when people have, you know, rides that are breakout performances on this random Saturday. And it's like, how did that happen? And I think a lot of it is just, we can't always predict the exact day that you're going to be flying and you have no pressure. You're with your boys or your girls and you just went YOLO and it's like, whoa, where did this come from? <laughs> Yeah. What is, yeah. What uh we got we got a few more minutes here. What's another good topic to hit on? Or what's something that's come across that people have emailed you about or things that have kind of come your way? Um I think going back to like timelines of specific training of like how long should you implement like a like an FTP build, for instance, like how, how, how much time should you like devote to this and how, how do you know if it's working? I think is a big thing as well. Right. So a, if you do an eight week FTP build. Okay. That's great. Like did, did you improve the thing you were trying to improve? Uh, and if the answer is no, that's still a valid answer, right. That's given you insight into your training. Um, so get, yeah, a lot of questions like that as well. What do you think? So how would you start that off? Do you, well, actually a good question is what do you think are the best workouts to increase FTP? Um, I'm kind of a fan of just a classic, like 20, like two by 20 style. I think like going back to, I, I would categorize FTP and everything under as endurance training, just about. <laughs> okay. Like, I, I know you can break it up more granular than that. Right. But my definition of FTP is above this point, you fatigue a lot quicker and below this point, you fatigue a lot slower and simplifying it keeps it a lot easier because there's so many definitions of FTP, right? It's like 27. <laughs> yeah. It's like, this is your hour power. This is your, whatever, your 20 minute multiplied by 95%. It's just like all these complicated uh, and it's always a range too. It's never like, oh, your FTP is 297. Like if you're above 297 watts, you're you're gonna fatigue so much quicker than if you're at 296 watts or whatever. No, it's like not that black and white. Like you're just talking about, it's like the human body is not that 
uh, I don't know what the word is. It's like not that basic. Basic dish. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I think it's important to, first of all, def define what you're trying to improve. And oftentimes I see that like FT, FTP workouts, it's not only improving uh, like your absolute power, like the your power at FTP, it's also improving your time to exhaustion. Mm. So improving how long you can hold your FTP. And I think that is very underrated. Uh, in a lot of instances, a lot of races, I'd prefer to improve an athlete's ability to to ride at their FTP for longer, versus improving the absolute number. Like especially for someone doing stage racing or long gravel events, because um, yeah, because then like someone's threshold TTE for one person might be thirty minutes, and for another person it might be sixty minutes, and having that distinction is really important uh, so i think it's important to define okay what what are we actually trying to improve are we trying to improve threshold as the absolute number are we trying to improve the time you're able to hold your threshold uh, and then there's a couple different metrics to look at to to maybe verify or see if there's anything changing i think i use a like efficiency factor a lot when i'm looking at training um, when I'm looking at threshold intervals, if someone's using heart rate and power. I like to think of heart rate as the input and power as the output. So I'm looking at how those factors are changing. Um, I don't like to give a lot of testing throughout the year. I think it's just, it's mentally draining and usually not super necessary, but I do think, you know, a couple, maybe one or two threshold tests per year it's beneficial in tracking and it's also beneficial in figuring out if the, if what you're trying to improve is actually improving. Mm. So I might, I might have an athlete test early season, uh, maybe after they've trained for 12 or so weeks, they built up like a, a nice reservoir of volume. Uh, all right, let's see. I, I like to do maybe a longer test than traditional as well. Like I might have an athlete do like a 30 minute uh, time trial type test. And I find that, correlates much better to threshold than if someone were to do like a 20 minute test and calculate that out or mm. uh or my my least favorite is like a cts test of like two by eight minutes or something <laughs> yeah um, but yeah i might have an athlete just do a, a 30 minute test or sometimes if an athlete is really in tune they they're at a high level uh like i might not even i might have them do similar like a ramp test but more often than not it's like i want you to go out and like feel out your ftp <laughs> mm -hmm. like like bring bring it up to tempo power bring it up to what you like give me a sensation of like seven out of ten rpe mm -hmm. and really try to hone in on on what you think your threshold is and i might just have an athlete do something like that if they're pretty in tune with their body i mean i think that's like pretty advanced for most people um but yeah, like we'll test and then implement a, a strategy. Maybe we're doing like a, a eight to 12 week via FTP block um, with the goal of increasing TTE or seeing improvements in threshold. When you do the 30 minute test, what number are you taking? What are you using to like calculate from that? Or what are you looking at to get their FTP? Uh, I'm usually just using that number Okay. or maybe a little bit lower. 
Um, and then I might, if if they have other historical data, I'll, I'll use WKO5 to kind of help. Uh, so I'm using that 30 minute test as just like feeding the machine, so to say, as getting like a long sustained effort. And then ideally the athlete has maybe like historical data from like one minute or five minutes, something in a shorter duration range. Um, and then using that and WKO5 and like a little bit of intuition kind of pinpoint where FTP is thereabouts and like maybe given a range to that. Yeah. Uh, not just having like a specific number. Yeah. I like that. The art of coaching comes into play there for sure. Where do you think over-unders come into play in FTP work, if at all? I really like over-unders. I think, yeah, so 2 by 20 would kind of be the bread and butter, but I'm also a big fan of over-unders. I think it really helps from a mental standpoint, as well as I think some riders just respond better physiologically to like an over-under type effort. Mm -hmm. uh, and like you can structure over-unders in so many different ways. It's like, okay, I might do like 30 seconds at 150% of threshold and then drop it down to 90% or 85% for two minutes. Or, you know, you could do like four minutes at 90% and one minute at like 130%. There's just so many ways. So many but ways. Like, I, would, I would categorize an over-under workout as a threshold workout, essentially. Yeah. It just, it's just yeah. a different way of training threshold. It's yeah, I, I'm always curious because the I came up more in constant power, four by tens, two by twenties, all of that. And really a couple of years ago, got more into over-unders. And I think those really helped me out a lot. I kind of wish I had been doing them earlier in my race career. Uh, but at the same time, I also trained more VO2 max and saw that increase. So I think that obviously affects my threshold as well so it's hard to pinpoint what was the exact like there's no magic bullet but climbing i feel and again now that i live more in a mountainous area i might just be better at climbing because i climb more but i was doing an event with my buddy patrick and he we've known each other as riders for a long time he's like dude what the hell are you doing in training like you just blasted me and I was like, well, more over-unders, but maybe a little bit more VO2 max, also climbing more. So it's like, it's hard to suss out exactly what it is. And when I coach athletes, the pro the thing with over-unders is it's harder to gauge progress. And I think mm -hmm. that it's, you know, an athlete wants to see that one number. And I try to explain also, well, like, what about recovery? Do you care about recovery between efforts? And as you said, what about holding that same number, but longer? That's very important. And so um, it's just, it, I, it's a very interesting conversation to me because then there's also people that push back and say, oh, well, when are you ever doing a 20 minute effort in a constant power in a race? It's like, okay, that's true. Like overrunners might be a better thing in that aspect because more surgy and pace liney. But I do think that the ability to push consistently very hard for 20 plus minutes has its purpose. Um so I think it's, you know, for me, it's just trying to balance all of that and, you know, getting to the goal, like you said, having the athlete understand the pathway that we're going and having it be a number that they can look at and see, or, you know, TTE, actual raw wattage reduction, in, uh, rest interval. And, um, and then, yeah, you use the word sensations on an earlier part of the podcast. And that's super important too. Like, I can tell on a certain climb here when my FTP is at its peak 
or when I'm struggling a little bit and it's just how I climb and how I push and where I can surge. And I think you said, you know, that maybe that's more advanced and maybe that just comes with years of training, but yeah, it's, it's always, uh, yeah, I'm going to leave it at that. That's a good topic. I like that. Yeah. I like, I like the over-unders too, because they are a little bit more race specific. Like I don't think training shouldn't, always mimic racing like you're trying to train your physiology you're not trying yeah but at a certain point i think it is beneficial to have training mimic racing a little bit to some degree and like you talked about with climbing too it's like an over under workout can be a great way to uh not only execute an ftp workout but also work on maybe a specific limiter so like maybe someone is having difficulty producing power at higher torque loads I might have them do an over under workout where the under portion they're just riding self-selected cadence at whatever 90% of their FTP. And then in the over portion, I might have them maybe like over gear themselves a little bit. So they might be riding 130% of FTP at like 65 RPM or like maybe out of the saddle. Maybe they struggle with producing power out of the saddle. So it's it's a little bit of it's a way you can implement like an additional target to the workout rather than just time spent at FTP. Mm. So I really like over-unders for that reason as well. I like the, uh, the torque idea. And uh, you made the comment earlier of how like a newer athlete, it's sometimes we forget how much we didn't know when we started. And I had a guy who was, we were working on anaerobic capacity. I'm just like scratching my head at some of the numbers. Like, man, you really like, can't you, you can't like, just, you're just not like out of the saddle, like cranking on. He goes, wait a minute, should I be standing during these efforts? And I'm like, oh dude, wait, are you sitting? He's like, I never stand. I'm like, wait, ever? He's like, never. I'm like, oh my God, dude, we're going to have a breakthrough uh, year this year. We yeah, right. Produce power. Holy cow. It was like power curve from zero seconds to two minutes was just like shattered. And I was like, oh man, I fear. Okay. Got to remember to tell people some very basic things. And I, I love that. It was, um, he still laughs at it. So. Any, uh, this is a uh, great conversation, man. I appreciate you coming on and doing this. Any kind of closing thoughts or things you want to hit on? Uh, I think, yeah, the last thing I would just say is everything we talked about is so individualized. <laughs> uh, so it makes, it makes putting these things into practice maybe pretty difficult, but I think it's important to remember that, yeah, like the training that works for one person is not going to be what works for you. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of just, I'd suggest working with a coach and kind of just, you know, recording the training you're doing, writing down subjective measurements uh, and kind of just exploring these concepts on your own as an athlete mm. and learning, learning what works for you, what, what you respond well to, uh, what periodization style makes sense for not only your timeline and the racing you're doing, but also just your lifestyle as well. Mm. Like I was thinking about, you know, the concept of like reverse periodization, right? It's like something I don't really implement a ton, but if if I was working with an athlete that going back to like the Minnesota athlete on the trainer, it might, it might make sense to take more of a reverse periodization approach with that athlete. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas someone in SoCal, I'd probably want to take that same approach. Um, 100%. And I think, you know, I had talked to somebody about, you know, doing intervals in the winter and they had shorter rides and and they said, well, this isn't like physiologically what everybody talks about in base. I said, are you going to ride the trainer in zone two in base all winter? I said, no, I hate it. And I'm not going to do it. I said, so 
maybe right. <laughs> maybe this isn't perfect, but not riding is not perfect. Training is never going to be perfect. Like what's going to actually work for your lifestyle? And it's, you know, I don't think the answer is doing a ton of intervals because you're going to burn out from that also, just as a ton of zone too. Like let's incorporate things. I would actually say that might be the time to do a Zwift race if it's going to keep you motivated. You're like, ooh, Tuesday night. Okay, I'm going to get my other easy rides in because I want to go banging out with my boys on Tuesday night at the Zwift. Like it's got to always flow with someone's lifestyle and, um, you know, try and make it. What's the like overarching focus? Can we still have fun, but have like an endurance aerobic focus? One, there's there's never one magic workout. There's no one workout that's going to kill you. Um, I, that's a really good point. And uh, you said something else that I was going to piggyback off of, but can't remember. Thanks, man. I appreciate this. Uh, what's the best way to people for people to keep up with what you're doing in terms of racing and coaching stuff? And oh, that's what I was gonna say. So we do. We're both coaches. We sound kind of shilly telling you to get a coach. This obviously helps if you have a coach. If you don't, I always say get a training buddy because when if you email Taylor or myself and you're like, hey, what would you recommend me do for the next week? And we don't know what you've done. We don't know where you're going. That's what I would call like snapshot coaching. It's going to be really bad advice. And that's usually, I, I know people don't like when I say, hey, I really, it's hard for me to help you in this instance because I just don't know you. I would be doing you a disservice. This is when have a training buddy that you ride with all the time. Once a week, talk about what you've been doing. Let them know. Let you know. Maybe you connect each other's training peaks somehow or whatever. If you're going to ask someone for advice, make sure they know where you've been and where you're trying to go. Otherwise, it's total BS information and it there's always that it depends answer. So, you know, if you can't get a coach and you want to get better, find another friend who's in the same position as you and team up and try and tag team this. And you'll learn a lot from because, as Taylor said, what works for you might not work for your friend and what works for him, vice versa. So um, best way to keep up with you. Uh, I'd probably say this Instagram I'm on IG at Taywar92. Cool. Um, yeah, and people can reach out to me there, send me DMs if they have any questions. Um, slide him in his DMs, keep it yeah. PD or don't, whatever. 